The world is engaged in a new form of war, this one centered around the technology called artificial intelligence, which put simply is the science and art of making machines more human. But at what cost? Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is Techtopia. The race to dominate an artificial intelligence, also known as the global AI arms race, has deep implications for how our society evolves in the decades to come. And it raises many troubling questions about privacy, civil liberties, and inherent biases transferred from humans to machines and back to humans again. Joining me now to talk about the current state and future of AI is one of my favorite guests and former Palantir colleague, Courtney Bowman. Courtney is the Director of Privacy and Civil Liberties Engineering at Palantir. His work addresses complex issues at the intersection of policy, law, technology, ethics, and social norms. Courtney has worked closely with the U.S. government and governments around the world to address the issues around the collection and analysis of COVID-19 pandemic data. And he has been thinking and writing about the challenges around the global AI arms race. Courtney, welcome to Techtopia. Thank you, Chitra. It's a pleasure and an honor to get to return and, and talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with some really basic questions. Uh, you know, people just talk about artificial intelligence, but just to be clear, how do you define artificial intelligence and what are the primary use cases and range of use cases that most people are familiar with and some that they may not be? It's a great question because I, I think there's a very expansive and very almost confused set of, of ideas that get clumped under the title of artificial intelligence. And this is a term that's been in currency for at least 75 years. So we have to also consider the historical baggage that attaches to it. But roughly speaking, artificial intelligence is a, is a class of technologies that are used to emulate or simulate various types of what are traditionally th thought of as human cognitive functions or intelligence functions. Um, and so when I think of artificial intelligence, um, and especially in the context of popular discourse um, in the media, in science fiction, but in also real world applications, I think it tends to break down into two broad categories. Uh, one form uh, of artificial intelligence I would call weak or narrow or cautious AI is the idea that computers give us powerful tools um, and they're domain specific, they're focused on special purpose programs that carry out specific functions in the world. So you might think of things like natural language processing um, for doing language translation or analysis of, of uh, various characteristics of, of speech and other types of language. Uh, computer vision, identifying faces or objects in the world is, a, is another form of narrow AI. Um, and then there's a category of what people refer to as strong or full or general artificial intelligence. And this is the idea that computers appropriately programmed really are themselves in some form minds. Um, they have general knowledge, they have applications uh, that are able to translate into a lot of different domains. And so this is what you see in a lot of science fiction representations, but there's also a number of commentators in the field that think that AGI, artificial generalized intelligence, is, is near on the horizon um, or is, uh, is closely coming. And, and this raises a lot of questions and concerns about whether we should be thinking of computers as as agents of moral culpability or as a risk to humanity, broadly speaking. If you talk to tech brainiacs like Peter Thiel or, or Elon Musk or others, 
you know, this idea that supplementing the brain and human behavior at first, and then eventually supplanting it, at least the lower order behavior to help humans focus on, you know, higher order tasks uh, is something that is doable and desirable, right? So humans can then fulfill their highest potential by allowing uh, robots, for instance, to do some of these lower end tasks. But as we can see, you know, with Tesla self-driving attempts and those of other, you know, autonomous vehicle companies, and then you see Boston Robotics with those seemingly human robots that become more and more human looking every, every version, uh, it, you could see that it's, it's easier said than done, right? What makes this so difficult? There's a lot of things that, that make it difficult. And um, again, recalling back that there's a, there's a long history of attempts to design um, computers to simulate or, or become uh, more human, um, dating back to the 50s, the mid-50s in the, the Dartmouth Conference, setting off a, a series of, of cycles of development that actually you can think of more as boom and bust periods. So periods of heavy development and classes of artificial intelligence um, collapsing into periods of, of AI winters. But a lot of this is, is driven by the idea that um, the, uh, there are insights that we're developing around um, neurophysiology that seems to suggest that there are functions in the brain that can be emulated in transistor-based computing devices. Um, and so that gradually builds up into the idea that if you just pull together enough computing devices with fast enough processors and enough data you can somehow begin to basically treat this brain as a uh, as a machine model and turn it into an actual simulation of the cognitive functions that take place in the, in the human mind. Um, and to be fair, I think there are some significant developments in this space in this space that speak to the ability um, to be able to emulate narrow characteristics. But I think increasingly what we find is that when we try to go the last mile in some of these applications, um, often it takes decades um, to make real progress. When we try to, to, to carry forward that last model to get from a pretty good representation or pretty good process into an actual human uh, uh, level of, of competence, things break down. You could take one example of the self-driving car. Um, you look at statements coming from, from Elon Musk and Tesla going back at least to uh, 2016 and 2015, where they've made pronouncements about any day now, within three to six months, they're going to be able to do a full coast-to-coast -coast, um, trip without human intervention, or any day now there will be, or next year, there will be 100,000 uh, robo-taxis that are completely automated, operating at level five automation. None of these things actually materialize because the problems compound and, and you realize that there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of um, fringe elements of the way that we interact with the world that, that actually are quite essential to our ability to navigate reality. And being able to program these into these reductive formulas that are computers is actually a non-trivial problem that we've been working on for decades and decades and arguably may not be a, a solvable problem, at least in the context of the type of computing devices that we're working with today. You gave me a really great example too of uh, Siri and Alexa. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I, this is a, another wonderful example of the sort of parlor trick nature of some of these tools. So Siri, Alexa are, are quite good actually at um, carrying out basic tasks of, that are well-structured um, and they're programmed to, to do this, to be able to respond to specific verbal cues about organizing your day or getting a, a seat at a, at a restaurant. 
those things that when you know the, the syntax of interaction, you can program a, um, a, a program to be able to handle the questions that come in quite well and, and then process the, the results or the expected results into a certain set of discrete actions. But a fun exercise that I would encourage folks at home to carry out is actually sit down with their um, Amazon Alexa or Siri device for 15 or 20 minutes and, and start to engage it in questions that would go outside of the scope of daily tasks. Start to talk about the world outside, the things that are important to you. And pretty quickly, you'll see that the, the degradation erosion of the, of the form of interaction. And that starts to to demonstrate that there really are just a narrow set of things that this type of program is capable of doing. Um, but when it gets to the richer interactions that constitute actually the majority of our lives and the, and the parts of our lives that I think are most enriching and important to our sense of humanity, they're just, they just don't do that. Um, and that's in, in large part because they're, they're not programmed, but even uh, the more critical insight here is I don't think they could be programmed to carry out those interactions um, in quite the, the, the way that need to be represented to call it a, a real intelligence or real generalized intelligence. It's a great example for people who fear that someday AI is going to take over the world, right? And it's just a, a perfect example because we all engage with Siri and Alexa every day. And it's just a great exercise to see both the marvelous complexity of the human brain to carry out conversation and, and the limitations of our attempts. So to date, even though we've made huge advances, as you said, uh, to transfer that power over to machines. And currently, you know, AI involves training these machines to be human, right? You're training them with vast amounts of data. What does that mean? And, and what does that actually involve, right? I mean, we talk about data being the new oil and you kind of see why that is the case. Yeah, th th there's different methodologies of, of artificial intelligence that have been pursued over the years. Um, going back to the 50s attempts to, to do um, heuristic development, basically try to map out the way that people describe their activities in certain situations and then program that into deterministic functions. Um, there's simple other simple manipulation approaches. And, but now we're in an era of a broad class of artificial intelligence that's built on a, a technology called neural networks. And it's, it's basically another attempt to simulate a theory of how neurons operate, a reduced theory of how neurons operate in the brain and use that as a, as a way of training um, models, not necessarily to follow rules, but to determine their own rules for carrying out certain processes. So what this looks like in practice is, let's say you wanna train a model to be able to identify cat images. Um, and the idea is that you start with a corpus of labeled images that you know that human analysts have worked through and identified as actually being cats. And they've been labeled as such. And the idea is that you, you basically throw these images into a pool of a data repository. You have a neural network model that is, is meant to go through and basically comb out patterns or um, identifying features in those images and based on the labels, and you would, you would include in your image repository, not just cat images, but non-cat images, to find its own method for identifying the patterns that constitute cats. Now, the, the problem with, with this approach is that what you're doing, in fact, is not identifying cats in the sense that we understand cats. What you're doing is you're breaking down images into digital components, bits and bytes, and you're looking for patterns in those bits and bytes that then can be used to infer other patterns of bits and bytes that you would call cats. 
Um, but the consequence of this, and this is something that is observed in another uh, area of research called adversarial AI, is you can actually introduce some visibly indistinguishable noise into a standard cat image. So when we would look at, at, at an image of a cat and see it as a cat, you can add this layer of digital noise onto that image that would tell a computer that the cat is anything you want it to be, that it's an ostrich or a school bus or a house. And to, to us to see that it's preposterous, but I think it speaks to the challenge of, of what computers are actually doing. They're, they're dealing with bits and bytes of information and, and doing pattern matching, as opposed to understanding what philosophers um, would call the semantics, the, the meaning that translates from the image into things that we understand to exist in the world. Does it have ramifications, for instance, in the military concept, a, a construct where if you can label it anything you want, could you label it to be a weapon uh, of some kind that could trigger some kind of response by another country, for instance, or is that too simplistic? No, I think that's that's a great example. And this is this is one of the interesting challenges um, with, with new technology. There, there's, there's oftentimes a race to, to develop the, the stronger version of that technology. Um, and when you have adversaries that are well-resourced, very technically capable, they're also going to pursue approaches not just to, to outpace you in terms of the technology development through maybe faster programs or larger repositories of training information or better optimization parameters. They're also going to try and find ways to trick your approach to algorithmic development or to AI development. And that's through man manipulating um, vulnerabilities that they might discover. Um, so this is part of the, the the broader what you refer to as the AI arms race that's likely taking place right now with broadly with near peer adversaries. So we could think about Russia, but primarily China as um, the the adversaries that we are up against. Um, and this is just one of the spaces in which this uh, this type of activity is playing out. And and what are the kinds of uh, things that are being done in in order to get supremacy in the global arms race? Uh, if data is the weapon, then what's what's the process that uh, countries are going through to establish dominance? I think investment is probably one of the the biggest ways that that nations are trying to get a leg up in any arms race, in, inclusive of of if you want to call it the AI arms race. So pretty heavy investment in research and development, and that takes shape uh, in many forms, um, investments in, in education and investments in infrastructure. But also I think one of the the, the most interesting facets of artificial intelligence and, and this um, so-called emergent arms race is that there, there's almost a shadow economy that has to underwrite it. Um, and if we could go back to the example that I gave before around um, training a computer vision model to detect cats, that type of model and, and many other classes of artificial intelligence are dependent on the, the training data that I described. And this is, this is uh, existing information that's been laboriously combed through and meticulously um, curated by, by humans. So there's a shadow economy of, of people that have to underwrite this, this capability to be able to provide the data that feeds into the, the algorithms and helps to train them to become more efficient and then also evaluates the, the results to see that they're um, performing as expected and, and perhaps also as plays, plays a role in the long-term maintenance and preservation of those, uh, of those AI um, capabilities as they're likely to degrade over time because the, the objects in the world are, are changing or the, the methods of collecting data are, are shifting as well. So, so that's another part of the equation here. It's not just training the highly skilled computer scientists who are building the models. It's, it's also having access to the resources to be 
tool to build the repositories of information um, that are used to, to actually train these AI algorithms to do the jobs that they're expected to do. Um, and that's a non-trivial commitment in terms of, in terms of resources. Um, but it's also, it's worth calling attention to that because the, I think a lot of the common presumption in talking about artificial intelligence is that it, it really is just leaving the machines to their own devices to do something that seems almost um, auto-magical. Um, it, it emerges as a property of really sophisticated machines. But the reality is that there's a lot of human labor that has to underwrite these, um, these activities. And so, again, this is another aspect of the parlor trick um, that there's, there's these human work that, that underwrites it. And arguably that human work's not gonna go away. In fact, um, the, the more we begin to, to count on or expect or set expectations around these capabilities, the more reliant we're going to be on, on various types of human labor to, to provide the data and the, the testing and validation um, to make them useful. That's kind of a really interesting point, given that, uh, you know, the critics of AI say, well, you know, someday this is going to really affect the labor market. And, and studies have shown that it, it does affect the labor market, right? That if you teach machines to do more things, then you need less humans. But at the same time, it sounds like eventually we may all be sitting at desks or in chairs, just programming these computers and contributing to the labor market. Yeah, I, I think I, I, it's one aspect of the labor, labor market um, that will shift. Um, it's already shifted. There is there is this underground economy of task laborers. So Amazon Mechanical Turk is a great example of this. Mechanical Turk is basically a framework that enables people to work from home and, and do this type of, some would say, menial tasking um, to, to help fuel uh, the, the, the training and development of these types of systems. But I, I think the, there are different facets of how AI may develop, or broadly speaking, other forms of advanced analytics and information technologies will develop that, that will likely lead to different shifts um, across the spectrum of more lower labor, level labor, but also skilled labor um, will shift over time as it has through the industrial age. So I, I think the, the concerns around AI and robotics taking over all of our jobs are probably overstated. It will certainly have an impact increase, and in, we're already seeing this increasingly an impact on um, the ability to carry out certain tasks and certain types of traditional jobs. But I think particularly in, in areas of skilled labor, um, where there are these fundamental concerns or fundamental parameters of ambiguity that make the task really difficult to program and really difficult to be reduced to a, a, a kind of syntax or a, a computer formalism. That's a place where human intelligence will be an enduring and critical component. Um, and also places where there's a question of moral culpability, where accountability and responsibility are, are societally determined essential features of the systems that we rely on, I think that's another argument for preserving the role of, of human uh, involvement or human in the loop or on the loop as a critical component of, of those systems because we care about those things. So that, that's a normative choice, but I would argue that the normative and the efficacious, the efficiency considerations often do and probably will continue to line up in, in pretty significant ways to preserve the role of human labor and human intelligence and human cognition in a lot of the spaces that some people are saying are going to be replaced by machines. Tell me a little bit about uh, what has shaped your uh, philosophy around uh, artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, so last time we, we spoke, um, I gave you the long-winded story of um, kind of my intellectual development and my background in philosophy and specifically my interest in a particular school of, of German philosophy called phenomenology. Um, but over the years, I've, I've gotten increasingly interested in the, what I've observed as being these various forms of category errors in some of the spaces in which I operate professionally as, a, um, as someone who's focused on information technologies and, and privacy and civil liberties. Um, I've seen a lot of confusion around the emerging interest or the re-emergent interest in artificial intelligence. And that, and that harked back to some of the, the philosophers that I had read as a student over the years. And, and particularly, there's, there's one uh, uh, philosopher who studied um, or interpreted um, some of the, the great characters in, uh, in the ph phenomenological tradition. A former professor who's now, now deceased uh, at, uh, at Berkeley, his name is Hubert Dreyfus. Um, he wrote a text in the late 70s, actually going back to the mid 60s, but he, he wrote a larger text in the late 70s that he refreshed uh, about a decade later called What Computers Can't Do. And that for me was a, a pretty telling text and, and very useful analysis in breaking down some of the fundamental category errors that tend to arise when people try to build or AI researchers try to build programs that can putatively replace the, the capability and function of human thought. Uh, some of the specific things that he called attention to are the ways that when we interact with the world, we, we don't just focus in and hone in on specific objects. In fact, there's a sort of fringe elements um, that, that define our conscious picture that we're not always aware of that are maybe operating our subconscious but that are actually instrumental for picking out the details that are of interest to us and, and make the whole scene salient and make our decision-making process salient. And those things are actually really hard to program into systems. There are other considerations around that, the ability to handle ambiguity. We do this all the time. We do this with language. Um, language has many meanings, many interpretations. And um, when we make even simple sentences like that the pen is in the box, or rather the, the box is in the pen. It's a, it's a sentence that can have multiple meanings depending on the context, but it's a very simple sentence. Um, but somehow we can take the context of application um, and, and navigate even when we know, don't know all the details and we can sort of fill in the gaps and keep moving uh, and, and handle that, uh, that ambiguity well. But we also know how to distinguish between what's essential and what's inessential for solving day-to-day -day problems. Um, and so all these are compounded issues because they require, if you want a complete view of, or a complete representation of machines operating in the world, you have to be able to program these really fuzzy concepts into the machine or find a good explanation of how something like machine learning will kind of infer these characteristics. And that's something that we has proven to be woefully uh, inadequate in the, in the forms of current computing that we observe. So th those insights came out of a lot of the, the philosophical influences th that I've studied, and they've led me to continually see how there's a lot of discourse around the ethics of, of artificial intelligence, and I think those are important things for us as a society to talk about. But a lot of those AI ethics questions are ahead of the more fundamental problems, which are that AI has more basic issues with epistemology and with metaphysics and ontology. Um, we, we've assumed that AI can carry out certain functions in the world um, that it's just not capable of doing. And so uh, this is not an argument against all AI. I do think there is a place for narrow, what I refer to as narrow, weak AI for carrying out specific functions. 
but it's more an argument for realizing that there are fundamental cap uh, capabilities limitations that, that computers can't understand the world in the way that we do. And therefore we need to put these systems in the appropriate place to, to be operated as tools and not as replacement for human intelligence. When we were chatting yesterday, you described it in a really eloquent way as a sort of a, uh, the way we're thinking is a reduction in our vision about how we should be interacting with technology and that we're essentially reducing humanity to the level of bad technology, sort of downgrading rather than elevating the technology to the level of human function in a way that enriches our lives. I thought that was really, I had never quite thought of it that way. Yeah, I wish I could be as eloquent as I as I was in the call yesterday um, on demand, but but yeah, I think that's that's roughly the risk with artificial intelligence, and we, we see this around us all the time. We see the ways that we've increasingly become bedazzled by um, by uh, these formulations of of machine operation, and they creep into our language. We we talk about you know having limited time to be able to spend with our our families. We talk about being bandwidth constraint. We talk about parallel processing our tasks, um, and and these are really I think computer reductions that I think malign our our capacities as human beings, uh, and that I think is the great the gravest risk. That the more we sort of set our ex expectations to what computers currently can do, the more we're minimizing our capacity as human beings, as opposed to making stronger demands for what the machines should be able to do um, in terms of lifting up our ability as humans uh, and rising to, to the level of all of the richness that surrounds us in, in our world and in our daily lives. And uh, you know, you're a data expert, you've, you've spent a great deal, you do spend a great deal of your time thinking and writing about the ethical issues around the use of data. When it comes to artificial intelligence, what are your, your biggest concerns around the data itself? and how we are using it? There's a, a lot of issues with how data is collected. Um, so this cuts to the core of what I do professionally and focusing on privacy and civil liberties. Information is often uh, collected or generated as exhaust in the, the various types of interactions we have with applications, with the internet, with our devices, and, and being able to track that information uh, and preserve it over time or make sure that it's deleted over time is, is an area of, of considerable risk. But, but these, these data collection problems um, and data management problems play significantly into the AI landscape because, as you mentioned before, in the current version of artificial intelligence, the, the building of, of um, various types of neural networks, they're heavily dependent, they're hungry, for, for massive quantities of, of data. And so there is a, there's a temptation to kind of grab at that data. And um, you know, going back to the way you themed the talk today is discussion around the AI arms race. There's a risk that we, in attempting to compete with our adversaries, lose sight of the ethical dimensions of how we collect and preserve and utilize data. Um, for the purposes of being able to get that leg up advantage um, that, that comes from having access to significant repositories of data for AI training and AI development. So I think there, you know, if there really is an arms race, um, it requires mindfulness of some of the, the fundamental limitations of, of artificial intelligence that I was referring to earlier, but to the point of many critics who are focused on the AI ethics question, we don't want to lose ourselves in the process of, of winning this this war, this this conflict. 
we don't want to lose our what makes our society unique and special our um, our values orientation our ethical compass by going overboard in um, in creating a massive uh, wealth of, of data um, that could be repurposed um, could be reused in, in ways that undermine some fundamental values that we hold dear like privacy and like um, digital uh, civil liberties do you see a role for regulation and if yes what types of regulation and if no why not this is a, a pretty heavy topic of discussion now. There's a number of different draft regulations that are on the books um, internationally and, and domestically. I tend to think regulation is going to be an important um, uh, consideration in, in this field. The, the challenge with regulation, which is a, a broader challenge with regulating technology, is that if you're trying to be overly prescriptive, you provide a draft regulation that speaks to the current state of technology, but then becomes obsolete effectively by the time the, the regulation has been passed into law. So the, the task here is to, to find a set of regulatory principles that are enduring, that can span over time um, and provide great utility in instructing the core considerations for, for building these technologies. Um, but don't get stuck in the current state of the technology. And then the second bind here is acknowledging that, as we talked about at the outset, AI is a very, um, is a very diffuse concept. Um, if you talk to 10 different experts, you'll probably get 20 different definitions about, about what AI is. Um, and encompassing all of the different types of systems that could be called AI gives you a, a view of a, a lot of different types of technologies that aren't necessarily coherent. And even if you take any given technology and look at it as AI in the context of say healthcare versus, versus um, manufacturing versus some other industrial application versus some type of criminal justice application, the concerns that come into, into play are going to be very different. So I think there's a, there's a role for, for regulation on, on probably couple of levels on one broad level defining principles of consideration and building not just AI but all types of information technologies that have implications to our lives but then I think the really salient applications of AI come down to sectoral uses and in those contexts the regulation really should be more about the industry or the application than about the technology and, and then on that point I would I would argue again that maybe a guiding principle is that we move away from thinking about AI as intelligence in the human sense and focus more on AI as a tool, as a tool that needs to be regulated in a specific context. And I think that gets us closer to building out legislation that's going to be more useful and more robust and really gets closer to the heart of, of the questions that matter. I want to talk about a tool that you know we've been talking about a great deal over the past decade or more, which is self-driving cars, right? And we, you mentioned earlier that this last mile issue in artificial intelligence when it comes to self-driving cars is, is pretty extraordinarily overwhelming. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and, and what that says about the power and the limitations of AI and where self-driving cars may be going. Yeah, this is a really fascinating topic to follow because it, it, you just look back four or five years, this was the topic du jour. Everyone was planning for, for a world in which self-driving cars would be everywhere. You would find conferences um, in not just philosophical circles, but um, in social and legal circles, carrying out a discourse of what we philosophers refer, refer to pejoratively as trolleyology. This is the, you know, the trolley problem 
um, in the context of, of artificial intelligence for automated vehicles? Do, do you, you're driving down the street and um, the, the car is either going to veer into a family or in, into a, a baby carriage, um, which, which direction do you steer into? And, and so you get these kind of exotic flavored um, philosophical or ethical problems that I think actually lose sight of, of the more fundamental issues that I was talking about before. And those more fundamental issues are emerging all over the place. They're, they're emerging in, in very simple settings where automated vehicles are running into people because the, the computer vision confuses a person carrying a pizza box with a stop sign or because the weather has changed in a way that um, confounds the sensors on the vehicle. It's a different type of rain or a different type of precipitation or there's been a, a crash on the side of the road and the machine doesn't know how to interpret that crash uh, and so swerves in, in the wrong, wrong direction. Uh, and th this is all these forms of ambiguity that, that constitute our world. And they're the marginal issues that come up maybe every fifth day, but when they happen um, and, we, and uh, the systems that we rely on make bad decisions, they have pretty significant consequences. Um, so we have to accept that that's the reality. We live in a very uncertain world. And so if we can't solve these kind of last mile problems, it's not clear that we can trust these technologies to be able to carry out a considerable function in our lives and to operate as you know, fully automated self-driving under all systems and all, or all contexts. So, so that, that leads us to the question of, okay, well, what would be the conditions in which we are comfortable with self-driving vehicles uh, operating on the roads? And, and I would say the more viable future that we might be heading towards is a, is a future in which we have well-defined corridors. So, so let's say smart highways with sensors at regular intervals and um, lane uh, divide, dividers that are clearly legible to vehicles under all conditions, all types of precipitation, all road conditions. Um, and all vehicles who enter these corridors have sufficient capabilities in terms of sensors and um, software updates to be able to operate in those environments. And effectively putting, putting cars, as, as you described, as we were chatting about this yesterday, Chitra, onto the ferry almost, but, but in moving corridors along highways. That might be a world that's, I think is more tolerable. It's putting the the um, the capability onto well-defined rails, um, but it but it's also an interesting proposition because it raises the question of if we're going to move to a world in which all cars for long-distance travel are put into these um, these smart corridors, and and there's a significant infrastructure investment in doing that, would that infrastructure investment be better placed in actually building out rail travel, the robust rail travel, which is something we don't really have in the U.S. That's a really great question uh, to think about. Uh, so in closing, what are your thoughts as we head into this next decade in terms of uh, where this is all going uh, in terms of evolution and adoption of artificial intelligence and the global AI arms race? As you can probably infer from a lot of my remarks, I'm a bit skeptical about some of the more expansive claims of artificial intelligence, particularly the, the strong forms of artificial intelligence and especially in the more exotic flavors of people talking about singularity theory or, uh, or um, artificial generalized intelligence as computers that are gonna take over the world. I just don't think that's gonna happen in the near term and, and I would argue in the, in the long term, absent some very significant development in technology that probably moves us well beyond anything like the computing devices, devices that we rely on today. 
I do think there's a continued role for advanced analytics and there, and there has been for a long time. And, and this is, I think there's categories of advanced analytics that we call artificial intelligence today, but it's really just better ways of working with data. Um, and, and that is also inclusive of areas of development that I would refer to as narrow AI. So certain types of, of tasks like um, uh, natural language processing translate uh, low level translation, but but things like voice transcription. I think this is an area of, of natural language processing that's incredibly valuable to people who lose their vision or lose their ability to write. And I think that there will continue to see valuable refinements there. But I, I'm gonna go out on a limb and, and make a bit of a bold projection that's somewhat provocative and suggest that I think we may be heading towards what would be the, the third AI winter or some version of a third AI winter where a lot of the investment and a lot of the, the frothiness around the, this technology starts to dry up. Um, the, the money dries up, the, the focus from research institutions dry up and, and the terms themselves lose currency in, in part because a lot of the programs that have been in development fail to live up to the expectations that people have set for them. The hype cycle breaks down. I think there's some version of that on the horizon. And I think if we talked again 10 years from now, um, we could reflect on on how that that AI winter hype cycle, the boom and bust period played out. Um, and again, that's not to say that there there won't be forms of the technology that persist through the the winter. I think that's very much the case. But I do think there's going to be a dampening of expectations and spirits around the more the more far-reaching propositions that have been put forward, and and hopefully investment in more sober types of technology that are demonstrably useful. Um, and move the interests of humanity forward in ways that are, I think, are more grounded in reality. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me on Techtopia and for this fascinating conversation about the future of artificial intelligence. It's my pleasure, Chitra. Thank you so much for having me. Courtney Bowman is the Director of Privacy and Civil Liberties Engineering at Palantir. His work addresses complex issues at the intersection of policy, law, technology, ethics, and social norms. He worked closely with the U.S. government and governments around the world to address the issues around the collection and analysis of COVID-19 pandemic data over the past nearly two years, and he has been thinking and writing about the challenges around the global AI arms race. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.